Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. A parable, like a short story, has a beginning, a plot, a set of characters, a complete thought, and an ending. With such a clear, simple structure, it's tempting to take these stories on their own, outside the context of the broader story. To help illustrate this point, in this week's episode, Richard and I explore how our understanding of the parable of the wedding feast from last week's episode holds up against the broader context of Matthew chapter 22. The discussion illuminates the continuity of the chapter and brings together key themes from Genesis. It also leads to a Star Wars reference. This was bound to happen sooner or later. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 36 of the Bible as Literature podcast brought to you from our very impressive production studio at St. Elizabeth. It's wonderful to be here. How are you, Dr. Benton? I'm doing very well. It's been a long day. The evening has been a long time coming. No day is too long to discuss the Word of God in the Midnight Watches. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about today's episode. I know last week we discussed the parable of the kingdom in Matthew 20 and came to some interesting conclusions about the meaning of the mashal, namely that our fate with respect to the kingdom and the Lord's judgment is out of our control. It's in the hand of the Lord. He will lift up whom he chooses to lift up and abase whom he chooses to abase, and his ways are greater than our ways, so we can't penetrate his reasons. There's an impenetrable wall that we can't get past, You can't be certain of anything with respect to your status. You can be in, you can be out, you could be invited in, then taken out. There's no one who's on safe ground. And after having that discussion, you went and did a further study of the chapter. Tell us about that. I was interested in looking at the context here and reading the end of chapter 22, where Jesus talks about the greatest commandment of loving God and loving neighbor. What comes between this very harsh story of the Lord's judgment, and loving God and loving neighbor. And what I found was that we have discussion, long discussions, irrelevant discussions, discussions with no point, because the people in the way that they discuss these items are misunderstanding the basic point that all the judgment lies in the Lord's hand. What's really striking right out of the gate when you point out this contrast is that in the parable, the mashal of the wedding feast, There's no discussion. It's either I reject the invitation or I'm kicking you out. There's no discussion of why. There is discussion of why they reject the invitation, but it's very terse. It follows a kind of formula. All of the reasons pertain to materialism. But again, there's no debate. There's nothing to talk about when the Father says you're out. But then suddenly we come to the Sadducees. Well, first the Pharisees, then the Sadducees. And there's discussion happening. What's going on there? So the first discussion is about paying taxes to Caesar. The wedding feast is a harsh judgment. 
And the first reaction to this is first all kinds of flowery language. The Pharisees say, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth. Neither care for any man because you regard not the person of man. And they go on and on with this flowery language, first of all, to impress him. Which is kind of funny because we know from the author, I mean, the author sets the stage, that they want to entrap him. But then they come with this flowery language. It's almost comedic. Exactly. And then they have a discussion about paying taxes. You know, maybe like you had mentioned earlier, they want to see if he'll come down on this political issue for them. Do we pay taxes? Do we not? And Jesus's reaction is, God doesn't need it. It's not his. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is that when the Pharisees approach Jesus, they're really being naughty because they're testing his loyalties. They're playing on his loyalty to tribe and clan. What's your attitude towards the Roman occupiers? The question assumes that as a Jew, he's supposed to be against Caesar. And so it's not just that he's dismissing money. He's dismissing tribe and clan. And so then what's the next debate? The Sadducees come and they want to talk about marriage and the resurrection. Well, there you go. Once again, we're talking about what? Who's the next of kin if she married the first one? But then it goes to the second one and there's seven. And then in the end, who gets to claim her as their property? Because they're still talking about how to continue the dynasty, right? So they're talking about resurrection. But they're not. No, it's a continuing the fleshly dynasty into the kingdom. We're back in Genesis. In Egypt. We talked about that in a yeah. previous episode. Yeah, I mean, God is trying to give life. God is trying to provide life for you. And you're still insisting that, no, no, we can do it ourselves. See, we got this explanation of how reciprocity works in our culture. We've already tried to establish that we're not Romans. We have our own group. And now we just need to make it continue. I mean, it's just a worldly orientation. Right. It misses the boat. And then he says, marriage doesn't happen in the kingdom. And you misunderstand God, therefore you can't understand the resurrection. Which is a theme that comes up later. Right. Once the Pharisees hear that Jesus shut down the Sadducees, they want to come in and see what they can do. Because everyone's positioning themselves. Everyone, where this poor guy who got booted from the feast was speechless. Everyone here has something to say. Everyone here is scrambling for position. They want to try to establish Jesus' loyalties. They want to try to establish how they can continue their fleshly dynasty, their worldly dynasty through marriage. And now they're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong in their theological debates. Everybody is clamoring to find some way. They're grasping at straws to find some way to be able to say, well, if the master of the feast came to me and said, where's your robe? I could explain to him why I didn't have a robe or why he should give me a robe. Or Or I would make sure that I would have a robe. I would never be in the position of that man. Because here's the added dimension with these themes pertaining to life and resurrection. Ultimately, when God is saying to the one, because you don't have your coat, you're out. It's also a reminder, not just of judgment, but of the fact that God is the one who holds the power of life and the power of death in his hand. The life that will be provided in the resurrection is provided by God. There's an ascent to this point at the end of the chapter. We'll get to it shortly. So in this debate, the Pharisees now want to ask, what's the most important commandment? And now Jesus makes a nice decisive point, which is love God and love your neighbor. And it's very simple. He doesn't say, if you love God and love your neighbor, then you're in. I just want to point that out. He just says, do it. Love God and love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if you know this, then you know the whole thing. However, then Jesus asks a question. 
Everyone has been asking him questions up until now. But then in the end of chapter 22, he says, what do you think of the Messiah? What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And he traps them. And they say, well, he's the son of David. And he says, it's not possible. And quotes scripture. He quotes scripture, both in telling the two commandments and in saying who the Messiah is. So they're talking about themselves the whole time and how to continue their dynasty and how to figure out who's what and blah, blah, blah. And when he opens his mouth to speak, unlike the man in the wedding feast, he has something to say. The father gives him something to say because he's been committed to seeking Torah for wisdom. Right. And then what he does is he shows that they misunderstand who the Messiah is. They want him to be the son of David, who is a fleshly king. But this is in Matthew. At the beginning of Matthew, we learn that he is not the son of David. We learn that he is the son of God, whereas Joseph is the son of David. At Joseph, the line ends. He is not the son of David. He is not related to David. He is related to God, and he is the son of God. And so he does not say here in Matthew 22 that he is the son of God, but he says that the Messiah cannot be the son of David. And it's interesting. I write about this, actually, in my work on Galatians. I write extensively about this issue of the seed coming from God, and God's seed being the only spermatos that can give life, because just like they are scheming about clan— or scheming about marriage and resurrection, all these different ways to continue their line. So too did Sarah with respect to Isaac. And it's interesting that in Genesis, God actually prevented her pregnancy until he decided to fulfill his promise and to give a child. And he made sure, as Paul tells us in Romans, that Abraham was as good as dead before he fulfilled his promise so that not only would Sarah realize that she could not make a baby, even Abraham couldn't. So that when Isaac came, you knew that he was from God. He was from God's seed. And it's important the way Paul exegetes Genesis because in Genesis, it does not indicate that Abraham knew Sarah when Isaac was born. Which means that if you're scriptural, they did not come together to have a baby. This is why Isaac in Galatians is the child of the promise. It's through Isaac that Abraham's descendants are named and so forth. Now, the other patriarchs with their spouses, also to emphasize this point that all life comes from God, could not have children until God intervened. But it is with respect to Isaac that there is specifically no mention of sexuality whatsoever. Abraham did not go in and know Sarah before she had Isaac. It's powerful because the line through Isaac is directly from God. And this is what's happening with the birth of Jesus and Mary's conception. The line is directly from God. It is God who produced Jesus for the life of the world, which is what the resurrection is all about. It's about the life through the line of God, through Isaac and Jesus, right? Well, this is ultimately what happens then with the crucifixion that this is the fulfillment of this one law, the two laws that he gives, as well as the fulfillment of what it is to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, that you are the one who submits in love to God and to human beings. How can David say to the Messiah that he is the Lord and also call him his son? In the scriptural setting, it's very clear that he can't be. The answer is he's not David's son. The fact that they don't understand this point 
is exactly why they don't understand the judgment against the guy who didn't have a coat in the wedding feast. Well, once they say this, they can undermine him. They want to undermine the teaching. This is a human response to hearing hard teaching. You know, the child who hears something from his parents that he doesn't want to hear, he says they're stupid. When the child hears from a teacher an assignment that he doesn't want to do, the teacher is stupid. This is how people treat teachers when they give a teaching that one doesn't want to hear that's too hard or too disagreeable or too much time or too much effort. This is what they say to the teacher. They resist the gospel. I've been preaching now for more than a decade, and no matter how often I explain the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as a biblical function and its implication for the baptized, those who put themselves underneath the Bible as their authority in life and their source of wisdom. No matter how many times I emphasize what this means about materialism, about the work of the flesh, material growth, material success, the growth of your community, whether it's manifest as actually the construction of a building or success in some way, or the growth of your community through proselytization, all these things that people care about. All of these are undermined by scripture, all of them. And no matter how often you explain that teaching, people can't accept it. No, because of course you can't accept because it. Because it makes no sense. All the effort you put in to making sure that you are one of the faithful people who decide to come to the feast, you might end up with the wrong garment. Now, like we said last week, we don't know how you get the right garment. We don't know how you get the wrong garment. The scripture doesn't tell us. But what that means is even more dangerous, even more unsettling, in spite of all the services you've been to, in spite of all the efforts you've put into this, in spite of all the money you've given to building a bigger building, it might be you. You might end up bound hand and foot where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, and what I'm getting at, that's right, and what I'm getting at here is that their resistance to what Jesus is saying it could be laziness. It could be just trying to skirt around the teaching like you're saying. I think that's a key element. But I think also it could be the way people look at me when I say as a pastor, we don't need to pass a trade to ask for money. What do we care about money? It's bewilderment. Even the discussion, we're, we're building a, a church here at St. Elizabeth. We have a building project and we've been working on it for you know a few years now. To this day, people say, well, Father Mark, if you build it, they will come. If you build a building, more people come to the parish. And I think to myself, this is how we talk in the corporate world when we're making a business plan to be successful. But this is not how scripture talks. In other words, I can never acquiesce as a pastor to this argument because it's completely anti-scriptural. Absolutely. Whether or not people come because you build a building or not is irrelevant. The point is that it's irrelevant because it's not relevant to Scripture, and people struggle to accept that point. No, I mean, if they aren't coming because there isn't a building, then who are you going to attract? You're going to attract the people who won't come until you have a building. And if you believe that you have to build a building in order to be successful in the gospel— then you're not talking about the gospel, you're talking about something else, and you may have tons of people come and enjoy huge worldly success, but it will all die with you because it wasn't sown by the seed of God, which is his instruction. But you see what I'm saying about the Pharisees? I think that they can't help themselves because they're human beings. How could it possibly be any other way? 
this is how you build a dynasty. You find out who you're loyal to. You make sure you understand who's married to who. You get all your ducks in a row, and then you go out and execute and produce an output. That's how you get a messiah. Notice they're talking about loyalty to clan because what they're getting towards is, you know, the messiah is going to stand up and help us fight the Romans and push back on these Herodians who are basically imposters and build our dynasty and so forth. And at the end he's saying, look, I'm not David's son. You're talking to the wrong guy. You're missing the point. I'm not the messiah you're looking for. These, Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a nice uh, Star Wars. This isn't the messiah you're looking for. <laughs> Move along. Move along. All right. Well, this is uh, it's a great discussion. Yeah, thank you very much, Father. Uh, and I uh, look forward to next week's episode. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.